three, of harassed troops, he combated a force of ten times their number, the last flashes of imperial lightning still dazzled the eyes of our enemies, and it was a fine sight to see the bounds of the old lion, tracked, hunted down, beset presenting a lively picture of the days of his youth, when his powers developed themselves in the fields of carnage, Napoleon possessed, in an eminent degree, the faculties requisite for the profession of arms, temperate and robust, watching and sleeping at pleasure, appearing and awares where he was least expected, he did not disregard details, to which important results are sometimes attached, the hand which had just traced rules for the government of many millions of men, would frequently rectify an incorrect statement of the situation of a regiment, or write down whence two hundred conscripts were to be obtained, and from what magazine their shoes were to be taken, a patient, and an easy interlocutor, he was a home questioner, and he could listen a rare talent in the grandees of the earth, he carried with him into battle a cool and impassable courage, never was mind so deeply meditative, more fertile in rapid and sudden illuminations, on becoming emperor he ceased not to be the soldier, if his activity decreased with the progress of age, that was owing to the decrease of his physical powers, in games of mingled calculation and hazard the greater the advantages which a man seeks to obtain the greater risks he must run, it is precisely this that renders the deceitful science of conquerors so calamitous to nations, Napoleon, though naturally adventurous, was not deficient in consistency or method, and he wasted neither his soldiers nor his treasurers where the authority of his name sufficed, what he could obtain by negotiations or by artifice, he required not by force of arms, the sword, although drawn from the scabbard, was not stained with blood unless it was impossible to attain the end in view by a maneuver, all was ready to fight, he chose habitually the occasion and the ground, out of fifty battles which he fought, he was the assailant in at least forty, other generals have equaled him in the art of disposing troops on the ground, some have given battle as well as he did we could mention several who have received it better, but in the manner of directing an offensive campaign he has surpassed all, the wars in Spain and Russia prove nothing in disparagement of his genius, it is not by the rules of Monacucoli and Turin, maneuvering on the Renchen, that we ought to judge of such enterprises, the first war to such or such winter quarters, the other to subdue the world, it frequently behoved him not merely to gain a battle, but to gain it in such a manner as to astound Europe and to produce gigantic results, thus political views were incessantly interfering with the strategic genius, and to appreciate him properly, we must not confine ourselves within the limits of the art of war, this art is not composed exclusively of technical details, it has also its philosophy, to find in this elevated region a rival of Napoleon, we must go back to the times when the feudal institutions had not yet broken the unity of the ancient nations, the founders of religion alone have exercised over their disciples an authority comparable with that which made him the absolute master of his army, this moral power became fatal to him, because he strove to avail himself of it even against the ascendancy of material force, and because it led him to despise positive rules, the long violation of which will not remain unpunished, when pride was bringing Napoleon towards his fall, he happened to say, France has more need of me than I have of France, he spoke the truth, but why had he become necessary, because he had committed the destiny of France to the chances of an interminable war, because, in spite of the resources of his genius, that war, rendered daily more hazardous by his staking the whole of his force and by the boldness of his movements, risked, in every campaign, in every battle, 
the fruits of twenty years of triumph, because his government was so modeled that with him everything must be swept away, and that a reaction, proportioned to the violence of the action, must burst forth at once both within and without. But Napoleon saw, without illusion, to the bottom of things, the nation, wholly occupied in prosecuting the designs of its chief, had previously not had time to form any plans for itself. The day on which it should have ceased to be stunned by the din of arms, it would have called itself to account for its servile obedience. It is better, thought he, for an absolute prince to fight for in armies than to have to struggle against the energy of the citizens. Despotism had been organized for making war, war was continued to uphold despotism. The die was cast France must either conquer Europe, or Europe subdue France. Napoleon fell he fell because with the men of the 19th century he attempted the work of an Edel and a Genghis Khan, because he gave the reins to an imagination directly contrary to the spirit of his age, with which, nevertheless, his reason was perfectly acquainted, because he would not pause on the day when he felt conscious of his inability to succeed. Nature has fixed a boundary, beyond which extravagant enterprises cannot be carried with prudence. This boundary the emperor reached in Spain, and overleaked in Russia. Had he then escaped destruction, his inflexible presumption would have caused him to find elsewhere a Bailey and a Moscow, General Foy, Rome, I am in Rome, oft as the morning ray visits these eyes, waking at once, I cry, whence this excess of joy, what has befallen me, and from within a thrilling voice replies thou art in Rome, a thousand busy thoughts rush on my mind a thousand images, and I spring up as girt to run a race, thou art in Rome the city that so long reigned absolute the mistress of the world, the mighty vision that the prophet saw and trembled, that from nothing, from the least, the lowliest village lot, but here and there a reed-roofed cabin by a riverside, grew into everything, and, year by year, patiently, fearlessly working her way over brook and field, over continent and sea, not like the merchant with his merchandise, or traveler with staff and scrip exploring, but hand to hand and foot to foot through hosts, through nations numberless in battle array, each behind each, each, when the other fell, up, and in arms at length subdued them all, thou art in Rome, the city where the Gauls, entering at sunrise through her open gates, and through her streets silent and desolate marching to slay, thought they saw gods, not men, the city, that by temperance, fortitude, and love of glory towered above the clouds, then fell but, falling, kept the highest seat, and in her loveliness, her pomp of woe, where now she dwells, withdrawn into the wild, still o'er the mind maintains, from age to age, its empire undiminished, there, as though grandeur attracted grandeur, are beheld all things that strike, and noble, from the depths of Egypt, from the classic fields of Greece her groves, her temples all things that inspire wonder, delight, who would not say the forms, most perfect most divine, had by consent flocked thither to abide eternally within those silent chambers where they dwell in happy intercourse, Rogers, the rookery is that a rookery, Papa, Mr. S it is, do you hear what a calling the birds make? Yes, and I see them hopping about among the boughs, pray, are not rooks the same with crows, Mr. S they are a species of crow, but they differ from the carrion crow and raven, in not feeding upon that flesh but upon corn and other seeds and grass, though, indeed, they pick up beetles and other insects and worms, see what a number of them have alighted on yonder ploughed field, almost blackening it over, 
they are searching for grubs and worms. The men in the field do not molest them, for they do a great deal of service by destroying grubs, which, if suffered to grow to winged insects, would injure the trees and plants. Do all rooks live in rookeries? Mr. S. It is their nature to associate together, and they build in numbers of the same, or adjoining trees. They have no objection to the neighborhood of man, but readily take to a plantation of tall trees, though it be close to a house, and this is commonly called a rookery. They will even fix their habitations on trees in the midst of towns. I think a rookery is a sort of town itself. Mr. S. It is a village in the air, peopled with numerous inhabitants and nothing can be more amusing than to view them all in motion, flying to and fro, and busied in their several occupations. The spring is their busiest time. Early in the year they begin to repair their nests, or build new ones. Do they all work together, or every one for itself? Mr. S. Each pair, after they have coupled, builds its own nest, and, instead of helping, they are very apt to steal the materials from one another. If both birds go out at once in search of sticks, they often find at their return the work all destroyed, and the materials carried off. However, I have met with a story which shows that they are not without some sense of the criminality of thieving. There was in a rookery a lazy pair of rooks, who never went out to get sticks for themselves, but made a practice of watching when their neighbors were abroad, and helping themselves from their nests. They had served most of the community in this manner and by these means had just finished their own nest, when all the other rooks, in a rage, fell upon them at once, pulled their nest in pieces, beat them soundly, and drove them from their society. But why do they live together, if they do not help one another? Mr. S. They probably receive pleasure from the company of their own kind, as men and various other creatures do. Then, though they do not assist one another in building, they are mutually serviceable in many ways. If a large bird of prey hovers about a rookery for the purpose of carrying away the young ones, they all unite to drive him away, and when they are feeding in a flock, several are placed as sentinels upon the trees all round, to give the alarm if any danger approaches. Do rooks always keep to the same trees? Mr. S. Yes, they are much attached to them, and when the trees happen to be cut down, they seem greatly distressed, and keep hovering about them as they are falling and will scarcely desert them when they lie on the ground. I suppose they feel as we should if our town was burned down, or overthrown by an earthquake. Mr. S. No doubt, the societies of animals greatly resemble those of men, and that of rooks is like those of men in the savage state, such as the communities of the North American Indians. It is a sort of league for mutual aid and defense, but in which everyone is left to do as he pleases, without any obligation to employ himself for the whole body. Others unite in a manner resembling more civilized societies of men. This is the case with the heavers. They perform great public works by the united efforts of the whole community such as damming up streams and constructing mounds for their habitations, as these are works of great art and labor. Some of them probably act under the direction of others, and are compelled to work, whether they will or not. Many curious stories are told to this purpose by those who have observed them in their remotest haunts where they exercise their full sagacity. But are they all true? Mr. S. That is more than I can answer for, yet what we certainly know of the economy of these may justify us in believing extraordinary things of the sagacity of animals. The society of these goes further than that of beavers, and in some respects beyond most among men themselves. They not only inhabit a common dwelling, 
and perform great works in common, but they lay up a store of provision, which is the property of the whole community, and is not used except at certain seasons and under certain regulations. A beehive is a true image of a commonwealth, where no member acts for himself alone, but for the whole body. Evenings at home. Palms. These beautiful trees may be ranked among the noblest specimens of vegetation, and their tall, slender, and branched stems, crowned by elegant feathery foliage, composed of a cluster of gigantic leaves, render them, although of several varieties, different in appearance from all other trees. In some kinds of palm the stem is irregularly thick, in others, slender as a reed, it is scaly in one species, and prickly in another. In the palmareal, in Cuba, the stem swells out like a spindle in the middle. At the summit of these stems, which in some cases attain an altitude of upwards of 180 feet, a crown of leaves, either feathery or fan-shaped for there is not a great variety in their general form, spreads out on all sides, the leaves being frequently from 12 to 15 feet in length. In some species the foliage is of a dark green and shining surface, like that of a laurel or holly, in others, silvery on the underside, as in the willow, and there is one species of palm with a fan-shaped leaf, adorned with concentric blue and yellow rings, like the ice of a peacock's tail. The flowers of most of the palms are as beautiful as the trees, those of the palmareal are of a brilliant white, rendering them visible from a great distance, but, generally, the blossoms are of a pale yellow. To these succeed very different forms of fruit, in one species it consists of a cluster of egg-shaped berries, sometimes 70 or 80 in number, of a brilliant purple and gold color, which form a wholesome food. South America contains the finest specimens, as well as the most numerous varieties of palm. In Asia the tree is not very common, and of the African palms but little is yet known, with the exception of the date palm, the most important to man of the whole tribe. Though far less beautiful than the other species, the palm tree, it waved not through an eastern sky. Beside a fount of Araby, it was not fanned by southern breeze in some green isle of Indian seas, nor did its graceful shadow sleep o'er stream of Africa, lone and deep. But fair the exiled palm tree grew, midst foliage of no kindred hue, through the laburnum's dropping gold rose the light shaft of orient mold, and Europe's violets, faintly sweet, purpled the moss beds at its feet. Strange looked it there, the willow streamed where silvery waters near it gleamed, the lime bough lured the honeybee to murmur by the desert's tree, and showers of snowy roses made a luster in its fan-like shade, there came an eve of festal hours rich music filled that garden's bowers, lamps, that from flowering branches hung, on sparks of dew soft colors flung, and bright forms glanced a fairy show, under the blossoms to and fro, but one, alone one, midst the throng, Seemed reckless all of dance or song, he was a youth of dusky mien, whereon the Indian sun had been, of crested brow, and long black hair a stranger, like the palm tree, there, and slowly, sadly, moved his plumes, glittering athwart the leafy glooms, he passed the pale green olives by, nor won the chestnut flowers his eye, but when to that sole palm he came, then shot a rapture through his frame, to him, to him its rustling spoke, the silence of his soul it broke, it whispered of his own bright isle, that lit the ocean with a smile, I to his ear that native tone had something of the sea waves moan, his mother's cabin home, that lay where feathery cocos fringe the bay, the dashing of his brethren's oar, the conch note heard along the shore all through his wafting bosom swept, he clasped his country's tree, and wept, oh, scorn him not, 
the strength whereby the patriot girds himself to die, the unconquerable power which fills the foemen battling on his hills, these have one fountain deep and clear, the same whence gushed that childlike tear. Mrs. Hemmins, a chapter on dogs, Newfoundland dogs are employed in drawing sledges laden with fish, wood, and other articles, and from their strength and docility are of considerable importance. The courage, devotion, and skill of this noble animal in the rescue of persons from drowning is well known, and on the banks of the same, at Paris, these qualities have been applied to a singular purpose. Ten Newfoundland dogs are there trained to act as servants to the Humane Society, and the rapidity with which they cross and recross the river, and come and go, at the voice of their trainer, is described as being most interesting to witness. Handsome kennels have been erected for their dwellings on the bridges. Dalmatian dog. There is a breed of very handsome dogs called by this name, of a white color, thickly spotted with black, it is classed among the hounds. This species is said to have been brought from India, and is not remarkable for either fine scent or intelligence. The Dalmatian dog is generally kept in our country as an appendage to the carriage, and is bred up in the stable with the horses, it consequently seldom receives that kind of training which is calculated to call forth any good qualities it may possess. Terrier. The terrier is a valuable dog in the house and farm, keeping both domains free from intruders, either in the shape of thieves or vermin. The mischief effected by rats is almost incredible, it has been said that, in some cases, in the article of corn, these little animals consume a quantity in food equal in value to the rent of the farm. Here the terrier is a most valuable assistant, in helping the farmer to rid himself of his enemies. The Scotch Terrier is very common in the greater part of the western islands of Scotland, and some of the species are greatly admired. Her Majesty Queen Victoria possesses one from Islay a faithful, affectionate creature, yet with all the spirit and determination that belong to his breed. The Greyhound. The modern smooth-haired Greyhound of England is a very elegant dog, not surpassed in speed and endurance by that of any other country. Hunting the deer with a kind of greyhound of a larger size was formerly a favorite diversion, and Queen Elizabeth was gratified by seeing, on one occasion, from a turret, sixteen deer pulled down by greyhounds upon the lawn at Cowdery Park, in Sussex, Old English Hound. The dog we now call the Staghound appears to answer better than any other to the description given to us of the Old English Hound, which was so much valued when the country was less enclosed and the numerous and extensive forests were the harbors of the wild deer. This hound, with the harrier, were for many centuries the only hunting dogs. Shepherd's dog, instinct and education combined to fit this dog for our service, the pointer will act without any great degree of instruction, and the setter will crouch, but the sheep dog, especially if he has the example of an older one, will, almost without the teaching of his master, become everything he could wish and be obedient to every order, even to the slightest motion of the hand, if the shepherd's dog be but with his master, he appears to be perfectly content, rarely mingling with his kind, and generally shunning the advances of strangers, but the moment duty calls, his eye brightens, he springs up with eagerness, and exhibits a sagacity, fidelity, and devotion rarely equaled even by man himself, bulldog, of all dogs, None surpass in obstinacy and ferocity the bulldog. The head is broad and thick. The lower jaw generally projects so that the under teeth advance beyond the upper. The eyes are scowling, and the whole expression calculated to inspire terror. 
it is remarkable for the pertinacity with which it maintains its hold of any animal it may have seized, and island therefore, much used in the barbarous practice of bull baiting, so common in some countries, and but lately abolished in England, in those prescient views by which the genius of Lord Bacon has often anticipated the institutions and the discoveries of succeeding times. There was one important object which even his foresight does not appear to have contemplated. Lord Bacon did not foresee that the English language would one day be capable of embalming all that philosophy can discover, or poetry can invent, that his country would at length possess a national literature of its own, and that it would exult in classical compositions, which might be appreciated with the finest models of antiquity. His taste was far unequal to his invention, so little did he esteem the language of his country that his favorite works were composed in Latin, and he was anxious to have what he had written in English preserved in that universal language which may last as long as books last. It would have surprised Bacon to have been told that the most learned men in Europe have studied English authors to learn to think and to write. Our philosopher was surely somewhat mortified, when, in his dedication of the essays, he observed, that, of all my other works, my essays have been most current, for that, as it seems, they come home to men's business and bosoms, it is too much to hope to find in a vast and profound inventor, a writer also who bestows immortality on his language, the English language is the only object, in his great survey of art and of nature, which owes nothing of its excellence to the genius of Bacon, he had reason, indeed, to be mortified at the reception of his philosophical works, and Dr. Rowley, even, some years after the death of his illustrious master, had occasion to observe, his fame is greater, and sounds louder in foreign parts abroad than at home in his own nation, thereby verifying that divine sentence, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house, even the men of genius, who ought to have comprehended this new source of knowledge thus open to them, reluctantly entered into it, so repugnant are we to give up ancient errors which time and habit have made a part of ourselves, Disraeli, the lilies of the field, flowers, when the saviors come, benignant I fell on your gentle beauty, when from you that heavenly lesson for all hearts he drew, eternal, universal as the sky, then in the bosom of your purity a voice he set, as in a temple shrine, that life's quick travelers ne'er might pass you by unwarned of that sweet oracle divine, and though too oft it's slow. Celestial sound by the harsh notes of work daycare is drowned, and the loud steps of vain, and listening haste, yet the great lesson hath no tone of power, mightier to reach the soul in thoughts hushed louder, than yours, meek lilies, chosen thus, and graced, Mrs. Hemans, Pompeii, the earliest and one of the most fatal eruptions of Mount Vesuvius that is mentioned in history took place in the year 79, during the reign of the Emperor Titus. All Campania was filled with consternation, and the country was overwhelmed with devastation in every direction, towns, villages, palaces, and their inhabitants were consumed by molten lava, and hidden from the sight by showers of volcanic stones, cinders, and ashes. Pompeii had suffered severely from an earthquake sixteen years before, but had been rebuilt and adorned with many a stately building, particularly a magnificent theatre where thousands were assembled to see the gladiators when this tremendous visitation burst upon the devoted city, and buried it to a considerable depth with the fiery materials thrown from the crater. Day was turned to night, says a classic author, and night into darkness, an inexpressible quantity of dust and ashes was poured out, deluging land, sea, 
and air, and burying two entire cities, Pompeii and Herculaneum, whilst the people were sitting in the theatre, many parts of Pompeii have, at various times, been excavated, so as to allow visitors to examine the houses and streets, and in February, 1846, the house of the hunter was finally cleared, as it appears in the engraving, this is an interesting dwelling, and was very likely the residence of a man of wealth, fond of the chase, a painting on the right occupies one side of the large room, and here are represented wild animals, the lion chasing a bull, and see, the upper part of the house is raised, where stands a gaily painted column red and yellow in festoons, behind which, and over a doorway, is a fresco painting of a summer house perhaps a representation of some country seat of the proprietor, on either side are hunting horns, the most beautiful painting in this room represents a Vulcan at his forge, assisted by three dusky, aged figures, in the niche of the outward room a small statue was found, in terracotta baked clay, the architecture of this house is singularly rich in decoration, and the paintings, particularly those of the birds and vases, very bright vivid, at this time, too, some very perfect skeletons were discovered in a house near the theater, and near the hand of one of them were found 37 pieces of silver and two gold coins, some of the former were attached to the handle of a key, the unhappy beings who were perished may have been the inmates of the dwelling, we know, from the account written by Pliny, that the young and active had plenty of time for escape, and this is the reason why so few skeletons have been found in Pompeii, in a place excavated at the expense of the Empress of Russia was found a portable kitchen represented above, made of iron, with two round holes for boiling pots, the tabular top received the fire for placing other utensils upon, and by a handle in the front it could be moved when necessary, the nightingale and glowworm, a nightingale that all day long had cheered the village with his song, nor yet at eve his note suspended, nor yet when even tide was ended began to feel, as well he might, the keen demands of appetite, when, looking eagerly around, he spied, far off upon the ground, a something shining in the dark, and knew the glowworm by his spark, so stooping down from hawthorn top, he thought to put him in his crop, the worm, aware of his intent, harangued him thus, right eloquent, did you admire my lamp, quoth he, as much as I your minstrelsy, you would abhor to do me wrong, as much as I to spoil your song, for twas the self-same power divine taught you to sing and me to shine, that you with music, I with light, might beautify and cheer the night. The songster heard his short oration, and, warbling out his approbation, released him, as my story tells, and found a supper somewhere else. Cooper, the invisible world revealed by the microscope, a fact not less startling than would be the realization of the imaginings of Shakespeare and of Milton, or of the speculations of Locke and of Bacon, admits of easy demonstration, namely, that the air, the earth, and the waters teem with numberless myriads of creatures, which are as unknown and as unapproachable to the great mass of mankind, as are the inhabitants of another planet. It may, indeed, be questioned, whether, if the telescope could bring within the reach of our observation the living things that dwell in the worlds around us, life would be there displayed in forms more diversified, in organisms more marvelous, under conditions more unlike those in which animal existence appears to our unassisted senses, than may be discovered in the leaves of every forest, in the flowers of every garden, and in the waters of every rivulet, by that noblest instrument of natural philosophy, the microscope, illustration, larva of the common map, a, 
the body and head of the larva magnified, be the respiratory apparatus, situated in the tail, see natural size, to an intelligent person, who has previously obtained a general idea of the nature of the objects about to be submitted to his inspection, a group of living animalcules, seen under a powerful microscope for the first time, presents a scene of extraordinary interest, and never fails to call forth an expression of amazement and admiration. This statement admits of an easy illustration, for example, from some water-containing aquatic plants, collected from a pond on Clapham Common, I select a small twig, to which are attached a few delicate flakes, apparently of slime or jelly, some minute fibers, standing erect here and there on the twig, are also dimly visible to the naked eye. This twig, with a drop or two of the water, we will put between two thin plates of glass, and place under the field of view of a microscope, having lenses that magnify the image of an object 200 times in linear dimensions. Upon looking through the instrument, we find the fluid swarming with animals of various shapes and magnitudes. Some are darting through the water with great rapidity, while others are pursuing and devouring creatures more infinitesimal than themselves. Many are attached to the twig by long delicate threads. Several have their bodies enclosed in a transparent tube, from one end of which the animal partly protrudes and then recedes, while others are covered by an elegant shell or case. The minutest kinds, many of which are so small that millions might be contained in a single drop of water, appear like mere animated globules, free, single, and of various colors, sporting about in every direction. Numerous species resemble pearly or opaline cups or vases, fringed round the margin with delicate fibers, that are in constant oscillation. Some of these are attached by spiral tendrils, others are united by a slender stem to one common trunk, appearing like a bunch of hairbells, others are of a globular form, and grouped together in a definite pond.